All right, Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whether they do, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Ariel just read Psalm 1 because each week for the next two months, we're going to have a different person from our church read the psalm over us. Because today we are starting a new series called Teach Us to Pray. Nine weeks in the book of Psalms, you guys. The Psalms was the prayer book of Jesus. They shaped Jesus' prayer life. The Psalms is actually the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Uh, These Psalms flowed out of Jesus like he was made of them. When he taught, when he celebrated, even when he suffered, Psalms came out. This is how saturated he was. So if we want to become like Jesus, do we want to be like Jesus, be shaped by him? Absolutely. That's what Jesus followers are. Uh, If we want the world to see that in us, then we will learn to pray the Psalms in every emotion and season of life, just like Jesus did. So that's the plan for these nine weeks, to let get in a place where God can get his hands on our souls and shape us at the deepest level. So in community, we're going to pray Psalms together. On our own, you guys, we have a plan to get us all praying the Psalms together. We want to be shaped by Jesus' own prayer book. So here's what we're going to do. You ready? So not only are we teaching nine times in the Psalms from different angles, but we're also doing a 60-day challenge, okay? 60-day challenge. Starting tomorrow, we are calling all of Park Hill Church to pray the whole book of Psalms in 60 days, okay? That's two or three a day. Our worship guy, Drew, Drew Enos, he created the 60-day path uniquely for Park Hill Church. It'll go live on our website tonight because we want to be shaped by Jesus at our deepest level intentionally. We don't want to be unintentional about our spiritual formation because then it doesn't happen. The Psalms are this gift from God that actually give us the language of prayer for every season, right? Because on one hand, the Psalms are honest. Have you ever read them? They're dead honest about the full range of our emotions. It doesn't downplay anything. It has rage and doubt and questions and longing for justice. And all those emotions, they're validated. They're not filtered. They're all validated in the Psalms. And at the same time, you guys, the Psalms show us how to bring those emotions to God so he can keep shaping them. So it doesn't just say, oh yeah, you're, you're authentic in your emotional life. Yeah, the Psalms are authentic, so be authentic. No, it says, like, this is, this is really who we are and we really need God in who we are. <laughs> we need him to take us. It's like that Hillsong tune, uh, 
as you find me. You know that worship song, incredible song. And there's the bridge where it's like, you love me as you find me. And the echo comes back, and your love's too good to leave me there. Uh, you love me as you find me, but, you, but you love, your love's better than just leaving. You take me places. You take me into your image. And so that's what the Psalms are doing. That's, that's their goal. So when we pray the Psalms, we're letting Jesus form us spiritually because we're literally praying prayers after Jesus through every season of life. This is so important right now, you guys. This almost goes without saying, but it's important to remind ourselves of reality check of life today. 21st century, right now, someone or something is shaping you. Always. Forces are forming you. Someone's leading you. Whether it's through social media, entertainment, how your options to spend money are presented to you, how your political choices are presented to you. These things have the power to, sh- to change the culture of our hearts. So e- economists and sociologists, they've observed this. They call it choice architecture. Have you ever heard of choice architecture? In, in uh, this, this uh, New York Times bestseller book called Nudge, it's this idea of this giant elephant in the room that's nudging these little baby elephants. And really, the baby elephants think they're choosing where to go, but there's this force behind them that's giving them the illusion of freedom. They cannot go where they aren't intended to go by the force, right? And so this is choice architecture. It's all around us right now. Everywhere we look, we see options, right? And it's actually an illusion of freedom (laughs) because they're carefully designed everywhere to lead us somewhere and to actually shape what we want. Really? This can be good. It can be bad. Like, here's a, here's a good example of choice architecture. Think, like, public school healthy lunch initiative programs. Like, those are great. Like, what, is this a good or bad architected choice? Like, do you want a veggie wrap or frozen pizza? And you give it to the kid. You want the kid to pick healthy choice. Like, that's probably not a great choice architected in front of that child. No. So it's not, do you want fries or carrots? So for the healthy initiative, they architect it. Do you want carrots, apples, or bananas? And now they think they have freedom and they think they have a choice, but you've actually architected the situation. And that can be a good thing, right? But it can also, here's a less pleasant example. Trump or Biden? Like a, too soon, sorry. So like millions of of followers of Jesus have been shaped by the complex and insidious choice architecture of American politics, right? Like every four years, tons of voters, they vote for who they consider, ah, the lesser of two evils, that's my, but but then afterwards they get so passionate about it. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's, you know, even more people don't vote at all and very few people are like, oh my gosh, my guy is the best human in America for the job. They nailed it. Like, no one ever says that because we know there could be better options. Most are like, can't we just come up with, is this all we could come up with? Like, we, can we, though? That's the question. Can American partisan politics come up with better options? No. No. Why? Because our cultural systems benefit from choice architecture. Because choice architecture forms our hearts in profound ways. And the systems benefit from that. 
right? Like maybe you're like, no, 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 politics, that's far away from me. That's distant. It doesn't affect me. Really? Let me ask you, how's your heart? Like when someone says something about this president we have now or the one we had before, what happens to your heart in that moment? That conversation comes up and you go, and you, you start to feel things. Is it anger? Is it bitterness? Your eyes rolling? This, that, that stuff that seems so far away because of the choice architecture of our political system, it's actually changed the culture of your heart. In a sense, it's shepherding you. It's shaping you. It's telling you how to feel. If you've ever seen the documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, you guys, so good. Watch it for sure. If you've seen that, you know choice architecture exists all the way down into your pockets with your phones. Tells you what to click like on and not like, you know. And, and even though these things seem like distant politics over there or inconsequential like buttons in here, they have the power to shape us at deep levels. So I'll even say this. At the top of this psalm series, I'll say this. If you are a follower of Jesus, but you are unintentional in your prayer life, then I guarantee you are being shaped less by Jesus' kingdom and more by the powers of the world that oppose his kingdom. I know that sounds extreme, but it's real. Prayer is faith breathing. Prayer is faith breathing. As Jesus followers, we are called to live by faith in the power of God's spirit, his breath. Same word, ruach. God breathes his energy into us. But without us praying, that energy can't have us. That faith isn't alive in us. We can go a month without food, a couple days without water, only a couple minutes max without oxygen. Prayer is the oxygen of your spiritual life. But don't get me wrong, it's also hard. It's also hard. That's where the analogy breaks down. We breathe unintentionally. But my goodness, we have to be intentional about our spiritual breathing. It's hard to pray for everyone, and that's normal. It seems like that's across the board. Like Christians, great and small, gurus and newbies are like, prayer is hard. It's common to everyone. Uh, so, so if you're like, oh my gosh, a nine-week series on prayer, why can't it be something more practical? I just have a hard time with prayer. I totally get it. And so does everyone else in this room. We're all with each other on this. Prayer is hard. It's an uphill battle for everyone. I honestly doubt any of us will come to the end of our lives like, you know what? I really think I prayed too much. I should have been more practical, like on our deathbed. I just prayed too much. Like, it's not a thing. That's not going to be a thing for anyone. Have you ever heard the phrase, agonizing in prayer? Man, that person just agonizes in prayer. I think that's partly true and very important to push through in prayer. But for us, the real agony isn't praying. The real agony is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. It's when we stop breathing, you guys. We stop breathing when what our souls need most is to inhale and exhale the goodness of God. In his presence. And here's what this means. As humans, we have emotions that get pent up and need to vent out, right? They need to vent. They have to go somewhere. When you celebrate that amazing event or that graduation, you don't just go like, 
text yourself. You know, you don't just email yourself. You have to celebrate with someone. You have, to, you have to vent those emotions. Same thing goes with grief and joy and gratitude and anger. Humans have to vent. Psychologists say healthy venting actually alleviates stress that would otherwise manifest in your body. We almost always feel lighter or better when we share, like, I feel threatened or I feel this injustice at work or whatever. We feel that and we share that. We feel lighter. That's real, you guys. We're made that way. And as we will see from the Psalms, when we don't vent to God, we can end up expressing our venting in unhealthy ways. And that is the agony of prayerlessness, the real agony. The Psalms show us how to turn our emotional life into a thriving prayer life. You don't have to filter your emotions. You don't have to change them. You can just make them your prayer life. Even our complaining and anger can become prayer, right? Complaining in prayer, is just, there's a name for it. It's called lament. 63 of the 150 Psalms are complaining, and, and lament is the spiritually healthy form of complaining and venting. I've heard it said like this. Lamenting is complaining, but to the person who can actually solve the problem. That's lament. And, and so complaining about God is a sin. Complaining to God is a psalm. That's a psalm. We're invited to complain to God. Full exposure of our emotions to him. And, and this past year has challenged us emotionally in many ways. We're experiencing like new, dramatic situations. Mental health, physical health, loss of relationships over whatever. And, and, and there's just so much to vent about. There's a lot to lament. And the Psalms give us the language for this, you guys. We're not alone. We're part of a long history and family of complainers <laughs> that know how to do it right and do it well. And the Psalms bring us into the presence of a God who loves us too much to leave us wallowing without hope. So as we bring ourselves, whole selves, to God's presence, he then is able to shape us. He's the primary force that's giving us our wants and our desires. So these two months, you guys, May and June in the Psalms, it's not just about a two-month series and then great tick-off Psalms, what's next? No, this is about building a personal culture of prayer that innately turns to the Psalms in every season for the rest of your life. So very practically, three things. We're studying the Psalms on Sundays. Number two, we are praying the same Psalms. We are praying the same psalms together for 60 days. Check the website for that roadmap. The first two psalms, tomorrow morning, Psalm 1 and 2. Pray them with your voice to God. And then number three, this is a fun one. A couple of us are writing new songs right now for our church family. The old themes, the old hallelujahs with new melodies in our own voice for this moment as a community. And I cannot wait to see what God does, you guys, as we cry out, Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. So if we could, could we pray that prayer together out loud? Lord Jesus, teach us to pray on three. One, two, three. Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. Amen. May it be so, God. So I'm going to end this teaching unpacking Psalm 1. 
and I'll briefly kind of comment on it. But, but first, I want to really set the table for this. Maybe you have questions. We have questions now. Like praying the Psalms? What is that? Like, maybe you're like, it sounds great, but how do I pray the Psalms? I read them. I like reading. They're my favorite, like, random, quick morning Devo, just roulette of psalms. I never pick one. I do that. Um, that feels great. My favorite book, actually, for Devos. I've been in psalms for 20 years <laughs> or whatever. Um, so, but how do I pray them? Great question. Uh, first of all, we need to know what the psalms are trying to do. The psalms is a book of poems. It's a book of poetry. And what is poetry? It's different than journalism or a newspaper article, prose. Poetry is designed to invite you into an experience. That's what the Psalms are doing. They're inviting you into an experience. It's the largest collection of poetry in the whole Bible. And get this. From the beginning, they've been designed to be prayed. Not just read, but prayed. Prayer book of Israel, prayer book of Jesus, In the life of Israel, the psalms were designed to be sung by choirs in the temple. And some were meant to be prayed in homes on special days with families. Uh, So if you have a poetry book, how many of you have poetry books or you write poetry? We know what to do with those. They're like collections and you pick your favorite. You're like, I like this one. It's my favorite. That can be great. Book of Psalms is not that kind of poetry book. The psalms are 150 poems brilliantly designed and placed where they are in order for a reason to create a story from beginning to end. And it's easy to miss the structure if you're not looking at the whole picture, which is why we're doing it in 60 days. We want to take it all in. So so the book of Psalms poetically retells the whole story of the kingdom. From creation all the way through Israel's failure and God's faithfulness and the future promise that God will restore and heal the world. That's the Psalms. It's, it's retelling the story to all of your senses. And the amazing things, it doesn't just tell you this story. It, it invites you to be a character. It invites you into the experience. In other words, I love what Tim Mackey at the Bible Project says. The story in the Psalms becomes a temple where you can meet God's presence in. That's what it's designed to be. Say it again. The Psalms are designed to be a literary temple where you go to meet with God. They're meant to be that. Why do we say that? Because in the ancient world, the temple was a place where heaven and earth touch. It's God's house. It's where our deity meets humanity. That's what they believed in that day. And and this was Israel's belief and so if you rolled up to Israel's temple on a camel or whatever and, and, you, and you came up the steps, you would be washed over by art and, and you wouldn't be able to tell what's sacred and secular because there's fruit and lions on the wall and angels and then badgers. It's like, what is this? Everything is here. And it's almost like saying everything is God's. And then you hear, you don't just see, you hear priests reciting rituals professionally and choirs and music and, and, and you'd smell animals dying, fresh blood mixed with cooked, full, whole body goats and all of these just, your senses are just all going to 10. And, 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 and in this moment, all of these were symbolically declaring 
all of this proves your God is ruling. Your God is ruling the world and welcome to his living room. That's what you're feeling in this moment. This is the center of your world. Imagine you're a Jew and this is your God's house and you're in his living room and you're smelling, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching everything that points to his presence. Imagine the feeling and now imagine this. Invading enemies tear it down. And the temple is on fire. And then you're chained up and dragged through your streets outside the city and watch your home go down in flames. Um, And your head's just spinning. The whole center of your world just got pulled out from existence. And and you're spinning and you're like, where do I go to meet with God? And if God, wait a minute, and then you think, whoa, whoa, if God's the creator, if that was his house and he made everything and he's that strong, is he really that strong if those bad guys tore his house down? And then what about everything he promised to my house? My house is torn to bless. I've been faithful. (laughs) He promised to give houses to the faithful and vineyards. Man, if God's house is gone, where are we going to sing and pray our story? We're storyless. We're identityless. All of this is spinning in your mind. You guys, we talk, talk about doubt and deconstruction, right? I mean, the Psalms were touching on deconstruction thousands of years before postmodernism said it was cool, okay? This, the Psalms are the book for the deconstructors. This is what it is written for. The Psalms were written as a prayer book for exiles, It was designed to be a virtual temple where you couldn't see your real one. You enter the Psalms longing for God's presence to meet with God and hear the whole story repeated back to you because you forget when you're in exile. You forget, right? You have amnesia when you're in exile and you hear the story sung back to you in the form of poems that invite you to imagine the smell, taste, touch, sounds. And this story is meant to be experienced by us today through praying the Psalms, not just reading them and checking off your devos, but praying the Psalms. And one of the main authors of these Psalms, you know his name, he wrote almost half of the Psalms. What's his name? David. Exactly. Shepherd boy, became king of Israel, killed a Goliath on the way up. And about half of the Psalms are attributed to him. David's story is full of suffering, right? Victories, but also doubts and failures, massive failure. But he always ends up coming back to God, trusting God. In fact, God calls David. This David actually murdered someone, committed, he stole someone's wife. He did all kinds of things that were not in line with God. And yet he kept humbly coming back and being vulnerable about his real emotions and failures. And that's why God says, this man, is a, he's after my heart. And so in these poems, this David after God's heart, he opens up about what he's afraid of and what he's failed in. And through it all, he keeps giving thanks to his redeemer who keeps bringing him back. And all through the Psalms, you see this like repeated chorus where David always comes back to longing for the presence. Where can I go to meet with God? I've been exiled by my own sin. I've been exiled by my enemies. I've been exiled by disease. 
I've been exiled by battles and by, you name, like all of these things rip us away from God's presence. And so the theme, where do I go to meet with God in his temple, David says. Where can I meet with God in his temple? And so if you're here and you know the Bible, you know your Bibles, you're like, wait a minute. Didn't David live before the temple was built? Yes, he did. His son Solomon built the first one. You're like, well, then why does, in David's Psalms, why does he talk about the temple like he wants to be there? Excellent. Excellent question. People debate that question all the time. Exactly right. The portrait of David in the Psalms, hoping and praying for God's kingdom in a future temple, it mirrors the hopes of every later generation of exiles from Israel to the early church to us in San Diego. Like we're dragged away from God's presence by sin and by our culture and by our own desires and by disease and by things way out of our control in the government or whatever. And so David's prayers become our prayers. This is the point of the Psalms. This is what Jesus believed. You see Jesus on the cross My goodness, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus. We're going to get into that psalm next week. Was Jesus praying in God's will in that moment? He was praying Psalm 22. Jesus knew his psalms. He knew what Psalm 22 meant. Jesus was letting the psalms shape him in his moments of greatest agony. Where is the presence? Where is my father? Where is God? And Jesus and David and the Psalms, all of it is coaching us. David's like a prayer coach. He gives us words. How do we pray when we don't know what to pray? How do we discover God's presence in good times and bad? We pray the Psalms. So so 73 of the 150 Psalms are from David. The other 77... They come from later generations who wrote psalms, added psalms, and compiled psalms after David's own heart. So God's like, David's after my heart, and everyone that added psalms was after David's heart. Lord, I'm away from your presence. I'm doubting. I'm deconstructing. I'm lusting. I'm bitter. I'm angry. Oh, I'm joyful. I'm graduating. Oh, my kids are getting married. This is so amazing. Every season of life, after God's heart, after David's, and after Jesus's, we learn a vocabulary for greeting all of life in a way that we're shaped by the kingdom and not by the culture that wants us. This is why we pray the Psalms. And the end result, you guys, the Psalms become a virtual temple where we can go meet with God anytime in any situation of life. So it's not just the kind of book you read through, done. I read the Psalms in 2008 or whatever. No, they they were written over lifetimes meant to shape your whole lifetime. Through rereading and re-singing, re-singing. That's why you hear like the same psalm eight different times in songwriting. That's biblical. Sing to the Lord this song anew. That's biblical. And, And dialoguing with your community. You guys, these psalms are meant to become ours. They're poems for exiles. Poems for exiles. You guys... I don't know how you think about your place in San Diego or America or even if you're citizens of whatever country. Um, But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a citizen, you're an exile in Babylon right now. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you're an exile in Babylon right now. America is not our first allegiance, you guys. Our culture, American culture, might want your first allegiance and shape your heart, but we are first and foremost followers of Jesus, which means we are not dual citizens of heaven and America or whatever. That's nowhere in the Bible. We don't see anything like that in the Bible. The closest thing we get is Philippians, where Paul talks to Romans, and he's like, you are citizens of heaven. He never says you're citizens of Rome and heaven. He knows, that, he knows they know they're citizens of Rome, but he says, you are citizens of heaven. Live like it. And, and, and so, no, we're more like heavenly exiles in Babylon. This is who we are right now. And the Psalms are poems, our poems, our anthems for exiles. Learning to live by God's wisdom instead of America Babylon wisdom. And to seek God's justice in the world as we cry out, Lord, how long till you come how long till you heal till you make all the right calls till you till you my goodness you vindicate the lives of the millions of unborn who have been slain and those that have been ripped from families and those that have been erased because of marginalization and and you get rid of the sin in my heart that is greedy that I can't even see how long until you come The Psalms give us all of the language for this. This is why we pray them. This is why we pray them. So as we come to the end of the teaching, we're going to eat and drink the bread and the cup. Um, And we're going to do something we normally don't do right now, okay? We're going to finish the last five or so minutes. Uh, We're going to start these last five minutes by praying out loud Psalm 1 together. So uh, can we do that? Can we pray Psalm 1? You need to open it up. And then I'll give a few comments on this psalm to tie it all to Jesus. That's who it's talking about. But let's do this old school. I don't know if you, what kind of church you grew up in. I don't know if you guys prayed the psalms as a congregation. But uh, I love this. So I'll take the odds. You take the evens. Got it? So I'll read one and then you read two back and forth. There's only six verses. I think we can do this. I think we can do this. So Psalm 1, let's pray this. I go first. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Yeah. Yeah, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Yeah. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment for nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Amen. We just prayed the first psalm of all the psalms together as a church. Tomorrow you pray it again, Psalm 1 and 2. So, so just a few words on this. Psalm 1 is the intro to all the rest. It gives you all the summary of the entire book. And the basic idea, God made humans for his presence. And now humans are running in and out of God's presence, Right? We like our own presence, and we don't like God's presence when it challenges our natural instincts, unless we have the Spirit of God. So there's two ways we can go. There's two choices. 
Two choices. I don't know if you picked it up. Uh, in verse 6, verse 6 is the two choices. The way of the righteous and the way of what? The wicked. Yeah, it says there's, there's two ways. Two ways we can go. Way of the righteous, which is basically Torah, Moses, the commands of Israel. Like, bow down only to Yahweh and don't make an idol, right? And don't commit adultery. Keep Sabbath. Tell the truth in court. And don't envy other people's, like, stuff. It's pretty basic. Like, God doesn't make it complicated. He doesn't expect, like, a ton of complicated stuff from us. But here's our problem, you guys. <laughs> that way, the way of the righteous, like I said, it goes against the grain of our natural instincts. Because let's be honest, honestly, we, we sometimes like bowing down to idols because of the quick fix that it brings, right? It gives you a quick hit. Like the... Common names for the big idols, the big three today, is the misuse of sex, money, and power. You know, we, we can bow down to an idol if it instantly gratifies our ego. It's kind of nice. We like that in the moment. Um, and, and, and keep the Sabbath, really? Well, I don't know. I kind of like treating the whole week like it's mine. It pays off. I see return on investment when I work 80 hours, right? And, and if we're attracted to someone or something else, and it feels right. How could it really be wrong? Well, the Psalms call that the way of the wicked. It's, it's the way opposed to the righteous, to Yahweh. So Jesus picks up on this language when he calls people to follow his way, right? The first Christians didn't call themselves Christians. Outsiders called them Christians. You know what Christians called themselves? The way. That's what they first called themselves. Why? Because they read the Psalms. They knew their Bibles. They were shaped like Jesus was. Blessed is the one who walks in the way of Yahweh. And Jesus said, I am the way, right? When Jesus said, I am the way, he's like, you guys, I'm the blessed one in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who perfectly, that's me. Jesus says, I'm completely shaped by the scriptures. I'm completely spirit-filled. And if you follow me, not only will I show you the way, but I'll empower you to live it. And forgive you when you mess up and just get back up and help other people get back up in community that's vulnerable. Like, I give you everything you need. It's too good to be true. And then you flourish in God's family forever. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 7. There's a big, easy road. Leads to destruction. And there's this narrow way that leads to life. And Jesus says, I'm the narrow way. Follow me into life. Four people this morning at the 9 a.m. follow Jesus into life, you guys. If you desire to follow Jesus into life, to, to be honest, be honest about the way of the wicked, the way of Jesus, and, and, and be honest with God, which leads to dehumanizing destruction and which leads to flourishing in God's family. If you want to choose the way of Jesus, you're welcome. <laughs> you're op the invitation's wide open. June 5th, baptisms are open for you. We'd love to talk to you all month about what that looks like and the kind of covenant you're making with God and with one another. Um, my goodness, this is the message of Jesus and Psalm 1, whole book of Psalms. All about bringing God into every emotion, every season of life. Being honest. Don't filter your junk. Don't filter what you feel. Bring it honestly to God, the one who can actually do something about it. 
This is the invitation of God, and it starts with how we pray. This is why we pray the Psalms. This is it. So, it's a treacherous path these two months. We're going to follow the Psalms into what it means to pray the will of God, and, and what is gratitude prayer, how does science and prayer work together? Like we have Dr. Ruffet, and one of our elders, Point Loma Nazarene, chair of chemistry. He's going to actually preach on science and the Psalms. What in the world is that even all about? And then, and then praying beyond deconstruction. How is doubt actually a perfect environment for prayer? How does that even work? That seems contradictory. All of these things, lament and more, you guys, as we walk through these, engage community. We're going to be able to unpack kind of the implications of these things together in vulnerable community with discussion guides and all of this. Come on, like, let's pray the prayers for 60 days together. Tomorrow morning, you open up to Psalm 1 and 2. Tomorrow morning, you just say, Holy Spirit, come. I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but I need your presence just like David did, just like Jesus did on the cross. Come, Holy Spirit, and then blessed is the one. Pray conscious of God in your presence, and you're in his. I'm present to you, God. Blessed is the one who walks not in the council, and just pray these psalms to God. I kid you not, if you're consistent for 60 days, you will be shocked at the spiritual impact and effect this will have on your life. Direct your voice to him, Father, Son, and Spirit. Maybe one day take a psalm and paraphrase it in your journal. Like Eugene Peterson, the Message Bible style. Like just rewrite a psalm in your own heart on a paper as a form of prayer. And, or maybe write it to music. Set it to music and let us know what it sounds like. Email it in, a little mp3, like for sure. Like we'd love to sing with you and hear what you are praying and singing. Whatever it takes to, as a church whatever it takes to not just read the Psalms and tick off a box, but to pray them back to the one they came from. I believe this will shape us powerfully. So, can we stand together? We're following Jesus. He was shaped by the Psalms, so much so that when he was crushed, they flowed out of him. And, and we're going to eat and drink the bread and the cup now. We're going to come to the table where we feast on the broken body of Jesus and the, and the spilled blood of our king. And, and ahead, of, ahead of next week, just be thinking of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that whole psalm is actually filled with hope. And I think Jesus knew that because he knew his Bible he knew what he was quoting. Jesus' soul was psalms-shaped. So let's take a deep breath. Thank God for his presence with us. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the truly blessed one who shows us the way. <sighs> Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming a human being and experiencing the full range of human emotion and suffering. And, and, and you showed us what to do about it. You showed us what to do about our emotion and our pain. You showed us how to bring our whole self to 
a good father by soaking our prayer life in the Psalms. And when we fail, you forgive and you're faithful and you give us the power of the Spirit to follow you in every season of life. Thank you, God. Eucharist is thanksgiving. That's what this is. The bread and the cup, the Eucharist. It's thank you. Thank you for giving us everything we need and more. So empower us. We want to start well tomorrow in your temple, in your virtual literary temple. Speak to us as we speak to you the prayers of Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. We bless you, Jesus. Father, you're good.